Section 49 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Of the street orderlies. This constitutes the last of the four varieties of labour employed in the cleansing of the public thoroughfares of London. I have already treated of the self-supporting manual labour, the self-supporting machine labour, and the pauper labour, and now proceed to the consideration of the philanthropic labour of the streets. In the first place, let us understand clearly what is meant by philanthropic labour, and how it is distinguished from pauper labour, on the one hand, and self-supporting labour, on the other. Self-supporting labour, I take, to be that form of work which returns not less, and generally something more, than is expended upon it. Pauper labour, on the other hand, is work to which the applicants for parish relief are set, not with a view to the profit to be derived from it, but partly as a test of their willingness to work, and partly as a means of employing the unemployed. While philanthropic labour is employment provided for the unemployed with the same disregard of profit as distinguishes pauper labour, but with a greater regard for the poor, and as a means of affording them relief in a less degrading manner than is done under the present poor law. Pauper and philanthropic labour, then, differ essentially from self-supporting labour in being non-profitable modes of employment. That is to say, they yield so bare an equivalent for the sum expended upon the labourers that none in the ordinary way of trade can be found to provide the means necessary for putting them into operation while pauper labour differs from philanthropic labour in the fact that the funds requisite for setting the poor on work are provided by law as a matter of social policy, whereas in the case of philanthropic labour, the funds, or a part of them, are supplied by voluntary contributions out of a desire to improve the labourer's condition. There are then two distinguishing features in all philanthropic labour. The one is that it yields no profit. If it did, it would become a matter of trade, and the other that it is instituted and maintained from a wish to benefit the labourer. The street orderly system forms part of the operations on behalf of the poor adopted by a society, of which Mr. Charles Cochrane is the president, entitled the National Philanthropic Association, which is said to have for its object, quote, the promotion of social and salutiferous improvements, street cleanliness, and the employment of the poor, so that able-bodied men may be prevented from burdening the parish rate, and preserved independent of workhouse, alms, and degradation. End quote. Here a twofold object is expressed. The philanthropic association seeks not only to benefit the poor by giving them employment, and preserving them independent of workhouse, alms and degradation, but to benefit the public likewise by promoting social and salutiferous improvements and street cleanliness. I shall deal with each of these objects separately, but first let me declare, so as to remove all suspicion of private feelings tending in any way to bias my judgment in this most important matter, that I am an utter stranger to the President and Council of the Philanthropic Association, and that whatever I may have to say on the subject of the street orderlies, I do simply in conformity with my duty to the public. 
to state truthfully all that concerns the labourers and the poor of the metropolis. Viewed economically, philanthropic and pauper work may be said to be the regulators of the minimum rate of wages, establishing the lowest point to which competition can possibly drive down the remuneration for labour, for it is evident that if the self-supporting labourer cannot obtain greater comforts by the independent exercise of his industry than the parish rates or private charity will afford him, he will at once give over working for the trading employer and declare on the funds raised by assessment or voluntary subscription for his support. Hence, those who wish well to the labourer, and who believe that cheapness of commodities is desirable only, as Mr. Stuart Mill says, page 502 of volume 2, when the cause of it is that their production costs little labour, and not when occasioned by that labour's being ill-remunerated and who believe, moreover, that the labourer is to be benefited solely by the cultivation of a high standard of comfort among the people. To such, I say, it is evident that a poor law which reduces the relief to able-bodied labourers, to the smallest modicum of food consistent with the continuation of life, must be about the greatest curse that can possibly come upon an overpopulated country, admitting as it does of the reduction of wages to so low a point of mere brutal existence as to induce that recklessness and improvidence among the poor which is known to give so strong an impetus to the increase of the people. A minimised rate of parish relief is necessarily a minimised rate of wages and admits of the labourer's pay being reduced by pauper competition to little short of starvation and such doubtlessly would have been the case long ago in the scavenging trade by the employment of parish labour had not the philanthropic association instituted the system of street orderlies and by the payment of a higher rate of wages than the more grinding parishes afforded by giving the men twelve shillings instead of nine shillings or even seven shillings a week prevented the remuneration of the regular hands being dragged down to an approximation to the parish level Hence, rightly viewed, philanthropic labour, and indeed pauper labour too, comes under the head of a remedy for low wages, as preventing, if properly regulated, the undue depreciation of industry from excessive competition, and it is in this light that I shall now proceed to consider it. The several plans that have been propounded from time to time as remedies for an insufficient rate of remuneration for work are as multifarious as the circumstances influencing the three requisites for production, labour, capital and land. I will here run over as briefly as possible, abstaining from the expression of all opinion on the subject, the various schemes which have been proposed with this object, so that the reader may come as prepared as possible to the consideration of the matter. The remedies for low wages may be arranged into two distinct groups, namely those which seek to increase the labourer's rate of pay directly and those which seek to do so indirectly. The direct remedies for low wages that have been propounded are a. The establishment of a standard rate of remuneration for labour. This has been proposed to be brought about by three different means, namely 1. By law or government authority either a. fixing the minimum rate of wages and leaving the variations above that point to be adjusted by competition. This, as we have seen, is the effect of the poor law. 
or b settling the rate of wages generally by means of local boards of trade for conseil de prudhomme consisting of delegates from the workmen and employers to determine by the principles of natural equity a reasonable scale of remuneration in the several trades their decision being binding in law on both the employers and the employed two by public opinion this has been generally proposed by those who are what mr mill terms shy of admitting the interference of authority in contracts for labour fearing that if the law intervened it would do so rashly and ignorantly and desiring to compass by moral sanction what they consider useless or dangerous to attempt to bring about by legal means every employer says mr mill they think ought to give sufficient wages and if he does not give such wages willingly he should be compelled to do so by public opinion three by trade societies or combination among the workmen that is to say by the payment of a small sum per week out of the wages of the workmen towards the formation of a fund for the support of such of their fellow operatives as may be out of employment or refuse to work for those employers who seek to give less than the standard rate of wages established by the trade b the prohibition of stoppages or deductions of all kinds from the nominal wages of workmen this is principally the object of the anti-truck society which seeks to obtain an act of parliament enjoining the payment in full of all wages the stoppages or extortions from workmen's wages generally consist of one fines for real or pretended misconduct two rents for tools frames gas and sometimes lodgings three sale of trade appliances as trimmings thread and so on at undue prices four sale of food drink and so on at an exorbitant rate of profit five payment in public houses as the means of inducing the men to spend a portion of their earnings in drink six deposit of money as security before taking out work so that the capital of the employer is increased without payment of interest to the workpeople c the institution of certain aids or additions to wages as one perquisites or gratuities obtained from the public as with waiters box-keepers coachmen dustmen vergers and others two beer money and other allowances to workmen three family work or the cooperation of the wife and children as a means of increasing the workman's income four allotments of land to be cultivated after the regular day's labour five the parish allowance system or relief in aid of wages as practised under the old poor law d the increase of the money value of wages by one cheap food two cheap lodgings through building improved dwellings for the poor and doing away with the profit of subletting three cooperative stores or the club system of obtaining provisions at wholesale prices four the abolition of the payment of wages on sunday morning or at so late an hour on the saturday night as to prevent the labourer availing himself of the saturday's market five teetotalism as causing the men to spend nothing in fermented drinks and so leaving them more to spend on food such are the direct modes of remedying low wages namely either by preventing the price of labour itself falling below a certain standard 
prohibiting all stoppages from the pay of the labourer, instituting certain aids or additions to such pay, or increasing the money value of the ordinary wages by reducing the price of provisions. The indirect modes of remedying low wages are of a far more complex character. They consist of, first, the remedies propounded by political economists, which are a. The decrease of the number of labourers. For gaining this end, several plans have been proposed as 1. Checks against the increase of the population, for which the following are the chief Malthusian proposals. a. Preventative checks for the hindrance of impregnation. b. Prohibition of early marriages among the poor. c. Increase of the standard of comfort or requirements among the people as a means of inducing prudence and restraint of the passions. d. Infanticide, as among the Chinese. 2. Emigration, as a means of draining off the surplus labourers. 3. Limitation of apprentices in skilled trades, as a means of preventing the undue increase of particular occupations. This, however, is advocated not by economists, but generally by operatives. 4. Prevention of family work or the discouragement of the labour of the wives and children of operatives. This again cannot be said to be an economist remedy. b. Increase of the circulating capital or sum set aside for the payment of the labourers. 1. By government imposts. Governments, says Mr. Mill, can create additional industry by creating capital. They may lay on taxes and employ the amount productively. This was the object of the original poor law, 43 Elizabeth, which empowered the overseers of the poor to, quote, raise weekly or otherwise by taxation of every inhabitant and so on, such sums of money as they shall require for providing a sufficient stock of flax, hemp, wool, and other ware or stuff to set the poor on work, end quote. Two, by the issue of paper money. The proposition of Mr. Jonathan Duncan is that the government should issue notes equivalent to the taxation of the country, with the view of affording increased employment to the poor, the people being set to work, as it were, upon credit, in the same manner as the labourers were employed to build the market house at Guernsey. C. The extension of the markets of the country, by the abolition of all restrictions on commerce, and the encouragement of the free interchange of commodities, so that by increasing the demand for our products, we may be able to afford employment to an extra number of producers. The above constitute what, with a few exceptions, may be termed more particularly the economist remedies for low wages. D. The regulation of the quantity of work done by each workman, or the prevention of the undue economising of labour. For this end, several means have been put forward. 1. The shortening the hours of labour and abolition of Sunday work. 2. Alteration of the mode of work, as the substitution of day work for piecework as a means of decreasing the stimulus to overwork. 3. Extension of the term of hiring, by the substitution of annual engagements for daily or weekly hirings, with a view to the prevention of casual labour. 4. Limitation of the number of hands employed by one capitalist, so as to prevent the undue extension of the large system of production. 5. Taxation of machinery, 
with the object not only of making it contribute its quota to the revenue of the country, but of impeding its undue increase. 6. The discountenance of every form of work that tends to the making up of a greater quantity of materials with a less quantity of labour, and consequently to the expenditure of a greater proportion of the capital of the country on machinery or materials, and a correspondingly less proportion on the labourers. e. Protective imposts, or high import duties on such foreign commodities as can be produced in this country, with the view of preventing the labour of the comparatively untaxed and uncivilised foreigner being brought into competition with that of the taxed and civilised producer at home. f. Financial reform, or reduction of the taxation of the country, as enabling the home labourer the better to compete with the foreigner. The two latter proposals, and that of the extension of the markets, may be said to seek to remedy low wages by expanding or circumscribing the foreign trade of the country. g. A different division of the proceeds of labour. For this object, several schemes have been propounded. 1. The tribute system of wages, or payment of labour according to the additional value which it confers on the materials on which it operates. 2. The abolition of the middleman, whether sweater, piecemaster, lumper, or what not, coming between the employer and employed. 3. Cooperation, or joint stock associations of labourers, with the view of abolishing the profit of the capitalist employer. H. A different mode of distributing the products of labour, with the view of abolishing the profit of the dealer, between the producer and consumer, as cooperative stores where the consumers club together for the purchase of their goods directly off the producers. I. A more general and equal division of the wealth of the country. For attaining this end, there are but two known means. 1. Communism, or the abolition of all rights to individual property. 2. Agapism, or the voluntary sharing of individual possessions with the less fortunate or successful members of the community. These remedies may, with a few exceptions, such as the tribute system of wages and the abolition of middlemen, be said to constitute the socialist and communist schemes for the prevention of distress. J. Creating additional employment for the poor, and so removing the surplus labour from the market. Two modes of effecting this have been proposed. 1. Home colonisation, or the cultivation of wastelands by the poor. 2. Orderlyism, or the employment of the poor in the promotion of public cleanliness and the increased sanitary condition of the country. K. The prevention of the enclosure of commons, as the means of enabling the poor to obtain gratuitous pasturage for their cattle. L. The abolition of primogeniture, with the view of dividing the land among a greater number of individuals. M. The holding of the land by the state, and equal apportionment of it among the poor. N. Extension of the suffrage among the people, and so allowing the workman, as well as the capitalist and the landlord, to take part in the formation of the laws of the country. For this purpose there are two plans. One the freehold land movement, which seeks to enable the people to become proprietors of as much land as will, under the present law, give them a voice in the country. 2. Charterism, 
or that which seeks to alter the law concerning the election of members of Parliament, and to confer the right of voting on every male of mature age, sound mind, and non-criminal character. O. Cultivation of a higher moral and Christian character among the people. This form of remedy, which is advocated by many, is based on the argument that without some mitigation of the selfishness of the times, all other schemes for improving the condition of the people will be either evaded by the cunning of the rich or defeated by the servility of the poor. The above I believe to be a full and fair statement of the several plans that have been proposed from time to time for alleviating the distress of the people. This enumeration is as comprehensive as my knowledge will enable me to make it, and I have abstained from all comment on the several schemes, so that the reader may have an opportunity of impartially weighing the merits of each, and adopting that which, in his own mind, seems best calculated to effect what, after all, we every one desire, whether protectionist, economist, free trader, philanthropist, socialist, communist, or chartist, the good of the country in which we live, and the people by whom we are surrounded. Now we have here to deal with that particular remedy for low wages or distress which consists in creating additional employment for the poor, and of which the street orderly system is an example. The increase of employment for the poor was the main object of the 43 Elizabeth, for which purpose, as we have seen, the overseers of the several parishes were empowered to raise a fund by assessments upon the property of the rich, for providing, quote, a sufficient stock of flax, hemp, wool, and other ware or stuff to set the poor on work. End quote. But though economists to this day tell us that quote, while on the one hand industry is limited by capital, so on the other every increase of capital gives or is capable of giving additional employment to industry, and this without assignable limit. End quote. Note. This is Mr. Mill's second fundamental proposition respecting capital. See Principles of Political Economy, page 82, volume 1. What I intend to assert is, says that gentleman, that the portion of capital, which is destined to the maintenance of the labourers, may, supposing no increase in anything else, be indefinitely increased, without creating an impossibility of finding them employment. In other words, if there are human beings capable of work and food to feed them, they may always be employed in producing something. End note. Nevertheless, the great difficulty of carrying out the provisions of the original poor law has consisted in finding a market for the products of pauper labour, for the frequent gluts in our manufactures are sufficient to teach us that it is one thing to produce and another to dispose of the products so that, to create additional employment for the poor, something besides capital is requisite. It is necessary either that they shall be engaged in producing that which they themselves immediately consume, or that for which the market admits of being extended. The two plans proposed for the employment of the poor, it will be seen, consist, one, in the cultivation of wastelands, two, in promoting public cleanliness, and so increasing the sanitary condition of the country. The first, it is evident, removes the objection of a market being needed for the products of the labour of the poor, since it proposes that their energies should be devoted to the production of the food which they themselves consume. 
while the second seeks to create additional employment in effecting that increased cleanliness which more enlightened physiological views have not only made more desirable but taught us to be absolutely necessary to the health and enjoyment of the community the great impediment however to the profitable employment of the poor has generally been the unproductive or unavailing character of pauper labour this has been mainly owing to the fact that the able-bodied who are deprived of employment are necessarily the lowest grade of operatives for in the displacement of workmen those are the first discarded whose labour is found to be the least efficient either from a deficiency of skill industry or sobriety so that pauper labour is necessarily of the least productive character another great difficulty with the employment of the poor is that the idle or those to whom work is more than usually irksome require a stronger inducement than ordinary to make them labour and the remuneration for parish work being necessarily less than for any other those who are pauperised through idleness the most benevolent among us must allow there are such are naturally less than ever disposed to labour when they become paupers all pauper work therefore is generally unproductive or unavailing because it is either inexpert or unwilling work the labour of the indoor paupers who receive only their food for their pains is necessarily of the same compulsory character as slavery while that of the outdoor paupers with the remuneration often cut down to the lowest subsisting point is scarcely of a more willing or more availing kind owing to this general unproductiveness as well as the difficulty of finding a field for the profitable employment of the unemployed poor the labour of paupers has been for a long time past directed mainly to the cleansing of the public thoroughfares still from the degrading nature of the occupation and the small remuneration for the toil pauper labourers have been found to be such unwilling workers that many parishes have long since given over employing their poor even in this capacity preferring to entrust the work to a contractor with his paid self-supporting operatives instead the founder of the philanthropic association appears to have been fully aware of the two great difficulties besetting the profitable employment of the poor namely one finding a field for the exercise of their labours where they might be set on work with benefit to the community and without injury to the independent operatives already engaged in the same occupation and two overcoming the unwillingness and consequently the unavailingness of pauper labour the first difficulty mr cochrane has endeavoured to obviate by taking advantage of that growing desire for greater public cleanliness which has arisen from the increased knowledge of the principles governing the health of towns and the second by giving the men twelve shillings instead of nine shillings or seven shillings a week or worse of all one shilling a penny halfpenny and a quartern loaf a day for three days in the week and so not only augmenting the stimulus to work for it should be remembered that wages are to the human machine what the fire is to the steam engine but preventing the undue depreciation of the labour of the independent workman he who discovers the means of increasing the rewards of labour is as great a friend to his race as he who strives to depreciate them is the public enemy and i do not hesitate to confess that i look upon mr charles cochrane as one of the illustrious few who in these days of unremunerated toil 
and their necessary concomitants, beggars and thieves, has come forward to help the labourers of this country from their daily increasing degradation. His benevolence is of that enlightened order which seeks to extend rather than destroy the self-trust of the poor, not only by creating additional employment for them, but by rendering that employment less repulsive. The means by which Mr. Cochrane has endeavoured to gain these ends constitutes the system called street orderlyism, which therefore admits of being viewed in two distinct aspects, first as a new mode of improving the health of towns, and secondly as an improved method of employing the poor. Concerning the first, I must confess that the system of scavenging or cleansing the public thoroughfares pursued by the street orderlies assumes, when contemplated in a sanitary point of view, all the importance and simplicity of a great discovery. It has been before pointed out that this system consists not only in cleansing the streets, but in keeping them clean. By the street orderly method of scavenging, the thoroughfares are continually being cleansed, and so never allowed to become dirty, whereas by the ordinary method they are not cleansed until they are dirty. Hence the two modes of scavenging are diametrically opposed. Under the one the streets are cleansed as fast as dirtied, while under the other they are dirtied as fast as cleansed, so that by the new system of scavenging the public thoroughfares are maintained in a perpetual state of cleanliness, whereas by the old they may be said to be kept in a continual state of dirt. The street orderly system of scavenging, however, is not only worthy of high commendation as a more efficient means of gaining a particular end, a simplification of a certain process, but it calls for our highest praise, as well for the end gained as for the means of gaining it. If it be really a sound physiological principle, that the creator has made dirt offensive to every rightly constituted mind because it is injurious to us and so established in us an instinct before we could discover a reason for removing all refuse from our presence it becomes now that we have detected the cause of the feeling in us at once disgusting and irrational to allow the filth to accumulate in our streets in front of our houses if typhus cholera and other pestilences are but divine punishments inflicted on us for the infraction of that most kindly law by which the health of a people has been made to depend on that which is naturally agreeable, cleanliness, then our instinct for self-preservation should force us, even if our sense of enjoyment would not lead us, to remove as fast as it is formed what is at once as dangerous as it should be repulsive to our natures. Sanitarily regarded, the cleansing of a town is one of the most important objects that can engage the attention of its governors, the removal of its refuse being quite as necessary for the continuance of the existence of a people as the supply of their food. In the economy of nature there is no loss. This, the great doctrine of waste and supply, has taught us. The detritus of one rock is the conglomerate of another. The evaporation of the ocean is the source of the river the poisonous exhalations of animals, the vital air of plants, and the refuse of man and beasts, the food of their food. The dust and cinders from our fires, the slops from the washing of our houses, the excretions of our bodies, the detritus and surface water of our streets, have all their offices to perform in the great scheme of creation, and if left to rot and fust about us, not only injure our health, 
but diminish the supplies of our food. The filth of the thoroughfares of the metropolis forms, it would appear, the staple manure of the market gardens in the suburbs. Out of the London mud come the London cabbages, so that an improvement in the scavenging of the metropolis tends not only to give the people improved health, but improved vegetables, for that which is nothing but a pestiferous muck-heap in the town becomes a vivifying garden translated to the country. Dirt, however, is not only as prejudicial to our health and offensive to our senses when allowed to accumulate in our streets, as it is beneficial to us when removed to our gardens, but it is a most expensive commodity to keep in front of our houses. It has been shown that the cost to the people of London in the matter of extra washing induced by defective scavenging is at the least one million pounds sterling per annum. The Board of Health estimate it at two million five hundred thousand pounds. And the loss from extra wear and tear of clothes from brushing and scrubbing arising from the like cause is about the same prodigious sum. While the injury done to the furniture of private houses and the goods exposed for sale in shops, though impossible to be estimated, appears to be something enormous, so that the loss from the defective scavenging of the metropolis seems at the lowest calculation to amount to several millions per annum, and hence it becomes of the highest possible importance, economically as well as physiologically, that the streets should be cleansed in the most effective manner. Now, that the street orderly system is the only rational and efficacious mode of street cleansing, both theory and practice assure us. To allow the filth to accumulate in the streets before any steps are taken to remove it is the same as if we were never to wash our bodies until they were dirty. It is to be perpetually striving to cure the disease, when with scarcely any more trouble we might prevent it entirely. There is indeed the same difference between the new and the old system of scavenging as there is between a bad and a good housewife, the one never cleaning her house until it is dirty, and the other continually cleaning it, so as to prevent it being ever dirty. Hence it would appear that the street orderly system of scavenging would be a great public benefit, even were there no other object connected with it than the increased cleanliness of our streets. But in a country like Great Britain, afflicted as it is with a surplus population, no matter from what cause, that each day finds the difficulty of obtaining work growing greater, the opening up of new fields of employment for the poor is perhaps the greatest benefit that can be conferred upon the nation. Without the discovery of such new fields, the setting the poor on work is merely, as I have said, to throw out of employment those who are already employed. It is not to decrease, but really to increase the evil of the times, to add to rather than diminish the number of our paupers or our thieves. The increase of employment in a nation, however, requires not only a corresponding increase of capital, but a like increase in the demand or desire, as well as in the pecuniary means of the people to avail themselves of the work on which the poor are set, that is to say, in the extension of the home market. It requires also some mode of stimulating the energies of the workers so as to make them labour more willingly and consequently more availingly than usual. These conditions appear to have been fulfilled by Mr. Cochrane in the establishment of the street orderlies. He has introduced, in connection with this body, a system of scavenging 
which, while it employs a greater number of hands, produces such additional benefits as cannot but be considered an equivalent for the increased expenditure, though it is even doubtful whether, by the collection of the street manure unmixed with the mud, the extra value of that article alone will not go far to compensate for the additional expense. If, however, there be added to this the saving to the metropolitan parishes in the cost of watering the streets, for under the street orderly system this is not required, the dust never being allowed to accumulate, and consequently never requiring to be laid, as well as the greater saving of converting the paupers into self-supporting labourers, together with the diminished expense of washing and doctor's bills consequent on the increased cleanliness of the streets. There cannot be the least doubt that the employment of the poor as street orderlies is no longer a matter of philanthropy, but of mere commercial prudence. Such appear to me to be the principal objects of Mr. Cochrane's street orderly system of scavenging, and it is a subject upon which I have spoken the more freely, because, being unacquainted with that gentleman, none can suspect me of being prejudiced in his favour, and because I have felt that the good which he has done, and is likely to do, to the poor, has been comparatively unacknowledged by the public, and that society and the people owe him a heavy debt of gratitude. Note, Mr. Cochrane is said, in the reports of the National Philanthropic Association, to have expended no less than £6,000 of his fortune in the institution of the street orderly system of scavenging. End note. I shall now proceed to set forth the character of the labour, and the condition and remuneration of the labourers, in connection with the street orderly system of scavenging the metropolitan thoroughfares. The first appearance of the street orderlies in the metropolis was in 1843. Mr. Charles Cochrane, who had previously formed the National Philanthropic Association, with its eleemosynary soup kitchens and so on, then introduced the system of street orderlies as one enabling many destitute men to support themselves by their labour, as well as, in his estimation, a better and eventually a more economical mode of street cleansing, and partaking also somewhat of the character of a street police. The first demonstration or display of the street orderly system took place in Regent Street, between the Quadrant and the Regent Circus, and in Oxford Street, between Vere Street and Charles Street. The streets were thoroughly swept in the morning, and then each man or boy, provided with a hand-broom and dustpan, removed any dirt as soon as it was deposited. The demonstration was pronounced highly successful, and the system effective, in the opinion of 18 influential inhabitants of the locality, who acted as a committee, and who publicly, and with the authority of their names, testified their conviction that the most efficient means of keeping streets clean, and more especially great thoroughfares, was to prevent the accumulation of dirt by removing the manure within a few minutes after it has been deposited by the passing cattle, the same having hitherto remained during several days. The cost of this demonstration amounted to about £400, of which, the report states, £200 still remains due from the shopkeepers to the association, which, it is delicately added, from late commercial difficulties they have not yet repaid in 1850. Whilst the street orderlies were engaged in cleansing Regent Street and so on, 
the city commissioners of the sewers of London were invited to depute some person to observe and report to them concerning the method pursued, but with that instinctive sort of repugnance which seems to animate the great bulk of city officials against improvement of any kind, the reply was that they did not consider the same worthy their attention. The matter, however, was not allowed to drop, and by the persevering efforts of Mr. Cochrane, the President, and of the body of gentlemen who form the Council of the Association, Cheapside, Cornhill, and the most important parts of the very heart of the city were at length cleansed according to the new method. The ratepayers then showed that they, at least, did consider the same worthy of attention. For 8,000 out of 12,000, within a few days, signed memorials recommending the adoption of what they pronounced an improvement, and a public meeting was held in Guildhall, May the 4th, 1846, at which resolutions in favour of the street orderly method were passed. The authorities did not adopt these recommendations, but they ventured so far to depart from their venerable routine as to order the streets to be swept every day. This employed upwards of 300 men, whereas at the period when the sages of the city sewers did not consider any proposed improvement in scavengery worthy their attention, the number of men employed by them in cleansing the streets did not exceed 30. The street orderly system was afterwards tried in the parishes of St. Paul, Covent Garden, St. James, Westminster, St. Martin in the Fields, St. Anne, Soho, and others sometimes calling forth opposition, of course from the authorities connected with the established modes of paving, scavenging, and so on. It is not my intention to write a complete history of the street orderlies, but merely to sketch their progress, as well as describe their peculiar characteristics. Within these few months, public meetings have been held in almost every one of the 26 wards of the city, at which approving resolutions were either passed unanimously or carried by large majorities, and the street orderly system is now about to be introduced into St. Martin's Parish instead of the street sweeping machine. As far as the street orderly system has been tried, and judging only by the testimony of public examination and public record of opinion, the trial has certainly been a success. A memorial to the Court of Sewers from the ward of Broad Street, supported by the leading merchants of that locality, in recommendation of the employment of street orderlies, seems to bear more closely on the subject than any I have yet seen. Your memorialists, they state, have observed that those public thoroughfares within the City of London which are now cleansed by street orderlies are so remarkably clean as to be almost free from mud in wet and dust in dry weather, that such extreme cleanliness is of great comfort to the public and tends to improve the sanitary condition of the ward. But it is not only in the metropolis that the street orderlies seem likely to become the established scavengers. The streets of Windsor, I am informed, are now in the course of being cleansed upon the orderly plan. In Amsterdam, there are at present 16 orderlies regularly employed upon scavenging a portion of the city, and in Paris and Belgium, I am assured, arrangements are being made for the introduction of the system into both those cities. Were the street orderly mode of scavenging to become general throughout this country, it is estimated that employment would be given to 100,000 labourers, 
so that, with the families of these men, not less than half a million of people would be supported in a state of independence by it. The total number of adult able-bodied paupers relieved, indoor and outdoor, throughout England and Wales, on January the 1st, 1850, was 154,525. The following table shows the route of the street orderly operations in the metropolis. A further column, in the report from which the table has been extracted, contained the names of 13 clergymen who have weekly read prayers and delivered discourses to the street orderlies at their respective stations and recorded flattering testimonials of their conduct and demeanour. Employment of Street Orderlies Reader's note, the following table gives a list of dates and localities cleansed, along with the number of street orderlies, the number of wives and children dependent, and the money expended. End reader's note. 1843-1844, to Oxford and Regent Streets. Number of street orderlies, 50. Wives and children dependent, 256. Money expended, £560. 1845, Strand. Number of street orderlies, eight. No wives and children. Money expended, £38. 1845 to 1846, Cheapside, Cornhill and so on, City of London. Number of street orderlies, 100. Wives and children, 363. Money expended, £1,540, two shillings. 1846 to 1847, St. Margaret's and St. John's, Westminster. Number of street orderlies, 15. Wives and children, 65. Money expended, £306. 1847, St. James's, and so on. Number of street orderlies, 8. Wives and children, 32. Money expended, £115. 1848, Strand. Number of street orderlies, 8. Wives and children, 31. Money expended, £35. 1848, St. Martin's Lane, and so on. Number of street orderlies, 38. Wives and children, 138. Money expended, £153. 1848, Piccadilly, St. James's, and so on. Number of street orderlies, 48. Wives and children, 108. Money expended, three hundred and forty-one pounds, three shillings. 1848-1849, to St. Paul's, Covent Garden. Number of street orderlies, 13. Wives and children, 38. Money expended, thirty-eight pounds, ten shillings. 1849, Regent Street, Whitehall, and so on. Number of street orderlies, 18. Wives and children, 68. Money expended, ninety-eight pounds. 1849, St. Giles and St. George's, Bloomsbury. Number of street orderlies, 14. Wives and children, 71. Money expended, £58, one shilling. 1849, St. Pancras, New Road, and so on. Number of street orderlies, 16. Wives and children, 46. Money expended, £177, six shillings. 1849, St. Andrews and St. George's, Holborn. Number of street orderlies, 23. Wives and children, 83. Money expended, 63 pounds, 4 shillings and 9 pence. 1849, Lambeth Parish. 
Number of street orderlies, 16. Wives and children, 41. Money expended, £84.16. 1851. St. Martin's in the Fields. Number of street orderlies, 68. Wives and children, 179. Money expended, £119.3.04. 1851. City of London, Central Districts. Per week, during six weeks last past. Number of street orderlies, 103. Wives and children, 378. Money expended, £55. Total number of street orderlies, 546. Total number of wives and children dependent, 1,897. Total money expended, 3,782 pounds, six shillings and a penny. The period of nine years comprised in the above statement, 1843 and 1851 being both included, gives a yearly average as to the number of the poor employed exceeding 60, with a similar average of 210 wives and children, and a yearly average outlay of £420. The number of orderlies now employed by the association is from 80 to 90. End of section 49